Association and IndieBirth.com. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Welcome to IndieBirth's podcast, Taking Back Birth, here on iTunes. Hi, everyone. Marin here, of course. And I am back with the first podcast, After Cove's Birth. And maybe I'll link to that at the end. But today I'm here with a special guest. And as many of my listeners know, special guests are rare. This podcast is a bit of um, a monotone thing a lot of the time. So I am so thrilled today to welcome Dr. Nathan Riley. And we're going to hear from him. Uh, He is a birth and death physician, so I'll talk more about how we met online, Uh, but go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, Marin. Hi. Um, I'm happy to be here. Um, You you got my name right, which is easy because it's a pretty standard (laughs) American name. (laughs) I was going to be sad if I messed that one up. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Nathan Riley. We, we got to, I'll, I guess I'll let you kind of elaborate on how you found me, but um, yeah. I'm an OBGYN. I live in San Diego. I practice obstetrics up in Encinitas, which is like the happiest place on earth outside of Disneyland. Nice. And, um, and I also am completing my fellowship training in hospice and palliative medicine, which is on what many people would say is the other side of the spectrum. Um, so I have kind of like the luckiest job in the world. It's pretty great. Wow. So how does that look for you on a given day or a given week? Like how do you kind of manage both of those things? That's pretty intense. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't, I'm not doing obstetrics every day. Most of my time is actually spent with the, in the palliative medicine world and hospice worlds. So, you know, so a a typical day for me could look like, you know, going to people's houses who are on hospice, meaning that they have, you know, maybe at most six months to live and we're doing symptom management. And then, um, you know, generally one day a week or more, I'll have to go to the hospital and and I'll I'll be on call in the hospital managing laboring patients and doing C-sections, doing operative vaginal deliveries, et cetera. We work with a lot of midwives Awesome. And, um, and they kind of support laboring patients. And then when I'm needed, I will jump in and do something heroic if needed. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we, you know, we manage the ED and that type of stuff. So um, there are, there have been a couple cases, occasions when I've had to pronounce a death and then I go to the hospital and an hour or so later I'm delivering a baby. So it's kind of a, so that's why I say I have the luckiest job in the world. It's like the two most special, most mortal times in our life. I get to be intimately Hmm. Um, indirectly a part of that for so many people. So it's a really privileged role that I play. Hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Well, I want to talk more about all of that, but let's start with what is my first question, which is why obstetrics? How do you find yourself there? You know, I don't know. Um, I really don't. I don't, I don't know why, uh, why I chose obstetrics. I think that what I thought in medical school, well, first of all, medical training, as I'm sure you know, is, um, um, it's just wrought with problems, like the way that we educate physicians and 
one of those big problems is that they, it's kind of like when you exit high school and then they expect you to know what you want to be when you grow up, when you right. enter medical school, they kind of expect you to pick a field to specialize in. And it's hard to know what that's like when you're stuck in, in the books all day. So in med school, you're covering a, a, a thick textbook roughly every two weeks. I mean, it's a mm. high volume, very high intensity sort of learning environment. And at the time, and I, you know, what I continue to, to sort of, um, I don't know, uh, aspire to is, you know, a life where I have a, a good work-life balance. I have a lot of exercise and nutrition and, and I have a meditation practice and I have all these, you know, all these things that I, that I, I hope are going to help me live a, a long, fruitful life. Um, and I thought in med school, like, wow, we don't really learn a lot about this. So I took on, you know, learning about nutrition and exercise and how those things, you know, play in sleep, how those things play into, into, into our overall health. And um, I thought, wow, you know, when I did my obstetrics rotation, uh, OBGYN rotation, I, I thought, wow, this is like a, a healthy group of people who are getting pregnant. I mean, we're looking at the OB part of this, of course. Right. They're getting pregnant, and and this is an op, you know a great opportunity to talk to them about some of these things. And wow, if if I can make a practice out of teaching people about the ins and outs of of how human physiology and and all these lifestyle factors sort of interrelate, man, this would like our world would be a better place. And so that was my I think my initial motivation. Plus when you see a baby getting born for the first time, your mind is so blown <laughs> that it's like, this is something magical. I don't know what this is, but this is like that a human being just was made by another human being. I mean, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really cool thing. And so any OBGYN out there that says that they didn't go into it for that reason is they're, they're blind to you because there's obviously some magic there. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I found that, that, you know, maybe I would have time for with, with the gatekeepers to the household, the, the, the matriarchs of, 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 you know, the, the world's households and we could get some lifestyle education and some, and some, um, you know, some, some sort of lifestyle changes to help people get healthier. And, and so that was my motivation. But then in the rea reality of OBGYN practice, you don't really have the time to do that. You know, right. you're, you maybe have 10 minutes to do a full prenatal consult and you're going to talk about all the ins and outs of nutrition and exercise. And it's, it's just far more complicated than that. So, sure. so, um, so I've enjoyed, you know, so I enjoyed it, but I ended up finding that it wasn't fulfilling to me entirely. Right. Um, and as a physician, you know, it's, it's kind of a malicious environment, unfortunately, the OBGYN world. And um, you sort of have to live that you're, you're kind of a surgeon in the way you're trained. Right. And, um, and that doesn't necessarily make for the healthiest living or learning environment. So that's why I started looking elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Much better job. Yeah. Well, gosh, that was a lot of my questions. I think that you kind of answered a little bit, or I guess we could go more into just um, how did you deal with the environment that I imagine most obstetricians work in and that lack of time and that, you know, really lack of focus on each woman as an individual, just purely because you're trying to get people in and out. Um, how did you do that while you were in there knowing that there was so much more for these women to have access to? Oh, um, it's a comp, it, I guess it's, it was complicated, you know, residency training is like somebody needs to make a documentary about what it means, like what a person has to do to become a doctor. 
Yeah. Because it generally has nothing to do with taking care of patients. And that's like one of the big problems. And, and that is not, I'm not slamming medicine. There, you are right. going to find some of the, the best rounded human beings in the field of medicine. But that process of going through the process beats a lot of that, that sort of initiative out of you, right? Mm -hmm. Most of us want to save the world. We want to help people and we want to solve really complex problems. And that's why it attracts a lot of smart people right. that are not motivated by money. Because believe me, there's much easier ways to get rich <laughs> than to, to become a doctor. There's, there are very few, few you know, bleeding yeah. rich doctors anymore. And, um, and so when you're in this training program, you, you go in with the idea that, okay, you are here, you are the doctor, you're the one that's going to help this person. But there's so much red tape and there's so many barriers to doing that. Um, I mentioned, you know, the sort of malicious nature of OBGYN training, but that's not unique to OB, OBGYN training, the long residency, the training hours, the lack of sleep, um, and just like the general emptying of your tank as a human being makes it very, very hard for you to walk into a room where a person's going through the most scary thing in their life, let's say labor, and their pain and anxiety are on a different level. They don't have the coping strategies to get through this, and they haven't been educated prior because the clinic or the physician in a clinic where you've been getting your prenatal care hasn't had the sort of the tools, the time or the resources to provide you with maybe some insight into what this experience might like, or to even talk to you about your goals and your right. fear. And, mm -hmm. and so when you, when you can see there's all this stuff you want to do, but you don't have the ability to do it to help these people that you signed up to help way back when you were 18 and you were picking what it is that you want to do with your life, you know, when you decided to do pre-med or whatever right, in college. When you, when you run into this wall and there's really no way to get around it, it leads to burnout, depression, and just overall compassion fatigue. Like, sure. like when you don't have the ability to actually do what you're, what you're there to do. And as sure. soon as MD shows up after your name or DO for the osteopathic um, physicians, once that shows up after your name, you feel this, this immense responsibility to be yeah. diligent in, in how you take care of people. And so with those expectations for yourself and those expectations from a program standpoint or a system standpoint, you, you oftentimes aren't able to accomplish that. And, that, and that's very hard. So I, I'm, I'm going, I'm kind of rambling here because there's not an easy, I think, answer to that. You know? So to your question, my wife has been a great witness and she, and I don't have kids yet, but she has been a witness to the the, the physical, emotional, and psychological pain that medical training has been for me over the years. Wow. And I think that that really helps. But, but the, the, the shorter answer is that I don't know what the answer, I, I don't know how people get through it because, you know, I block a lot of, I blocked a lot of it out and there's a lot of coffee involved and there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of like just trying to find some way to be happy. And mm. whenever your tank is so empty, you just have no empathy left for other people. And, including your wife, including your family, including your friends. And I mean, it, it, it's a battle. It's a constant battle. Is that, is that what you were, is that sort of answer right. your question? Yeah, it answers it and it gives me a million more and just things to talk <laughs> about. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating hearing this coming from you. I don't talk to a lot of OBs and, you know, I think as midwives, you know, we probably don't understand for sure what you've been through and perhaps a lot of the reasons that obstetrics is the way it is, you know, so you're talking about 
Absolutely. Being burnt out. Yeah. And I mean, that's not stuff that occurs to us, even though we have our own burnout and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's really interesting to think about and gives me a lot more compassion for what you do and the field that you're trained in. Um, so I'm kind of jumping around, but not. The next thought that I was pondering while you were talking was, when you and I talked, you mentioned being influenced by midwifery. And so that, of course, is interesting to me. But hearing you talk, I mean, you know, you're not your average obstetrician, right? Like, uh, I mean, for a million reasons, right? Like, I don't know all the reasons. Um, but hearing you talk about wanting to spend those time, the, you know, extra time with women and, and make sure they have nutritional knowledge and are educated and even having this understanding of labor being this life event, like those aren't common thoughts, or at least they're not so easily mm -hmm. portrayed in Western medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, so was it, you know, was it the midwifery influence or can you talk more about that? Just why do you feel the way you do? Because it's not, it's not a common thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, no. thank you for that. I, I, I definitely see that there are not too many people like me. Um, I also am not the best doctor. I mean, I, there's a lot of people out there that would describe the best doctor as being somebody who's the best surgeon or who can recite every paper with every number that's ever been published about X, Y, or Z. Um, um, so if, you know, so when I say I'm not, a, I'm not the best doctor, I guess I mean that based on our sort of objective criteria for what makes a best doctor, the test scores or the, you know, the number right. of, I mean, I've never had really ever any bad outcomes, but, but, you know, there's, there's a lack of humility in medicine where we think in order to be the best, you must be a perfectionist and you must know all of these things. But the, the problem with that notion is that when you're focused on knowing every little detail of every study, and by the way, there hasn't been like a truly great study ever done in medicine that proves anything. There's a lot of really good guesses we have. And there's a lot of good evidence to say, like, I don't know, I guess for this particular person, this is probably our best guess. But that's why doctors get paid a lot of money. Like we've gone through so much training to do this stuff. Right. And to think about things critically and to know how to look at data. And we should be, we should be reading the data, we should be and that's why I have a podcast, you know, yeah. Um, we should be looking into the, what are the recommendations and why and does the data really support that for this particular patient? And that's what medicine, that's what a true medical scientist is supposed to do. But if you're going to, if you're going to focus a hundred percent of your time on doing what you think is right for the patient, you miss out on the fact that there's a human being sitting there in front of you. <laughs> right. And I mean, when that human being has another human being, Right. You know, right. doesn't it change where your direction comes from? I think yes. it does. I mean, yeah. even in midwifery, there are similar, similar thoughts and issues for sure. Yeah. Well, so, so yes. And, and, and to answer your question more directly, I think that I'd say probably about 10 to 15% of my patient interaction was facilitated through the practice of a midwife versus mm -hmm an OBGYN trained classically as I have been. 
And I have, I've been trained very, very well as an obstetrician. So don't get me wrong. When I say I'm a bad doctor, <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to separate myself from the notion of what a good doctor is versus a bad doctor. Sure. Because there's a lot of people that I see who, who, who would practice like a midwife, but they fear being perceived that they're a bad doctor because they don't know the, you know, the confidence interval on that one study that was published 20 years ago that we still are basing our obstetrics practice on. Meanwhile, there's also a person here in this bed who has some anxieties and fears around this process and you trying to medicate in some way or to treat through, you know, procedural means like maybe their labor isn't, isn't fully digestible to you because you just simply haven't gone in and talked to the person. And, and so in my, my practice with midwives, that 10 to 15% of my time, you, you learn about, and I hate the word holistic. I hate the word complimentary yeah. and alternative and all this stuff. Like they're just these fancy words that people use on Instagram to sell products. Sure. What, what, what we mean by that is that this is a human being who has had an entire life of experience. And that is playing into the physiology that is driving this important, very unpredictable, vulnerable sort of thing that they're going through. And once you, if you can grasp that, it makes you a better doctor without, without compromising the statistical analyses and the ability to stay up to date with the literature and the ability to operate surgically. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but, but that's not something that's emphasized. If you work with a midwife, you naturally see that, oh, you know this about this person. And by virtue of you knowing this, you can now take better care of them and this little person inside of them and the, the guy who's cowering in the corner because he's so afraid of what's going to happen with his, his partner or, or the woman in the, in the corner who's afraid of what's happening to her partner. You know, you know like there's this sure. whole thing that we, that we don't learn in medical school. And that's what I took from my, my, my practice with, mid, with midwives. And it has made me a phenomenal doctor. Um, it just may not be seen like that in the general notion of what we're taught in medical school about, quote, you know, being a, a, an outstanding physician. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. And that is being a fabulous doctor. I mean, what woman wouldn't want someone to pay attention to them? And especially in labor, you know, I, I say all the time, I've never been to two labors that are the same. Sure. The theme, you know, theme is the same and sort of the curve can be the same, but, um, it's different each time it's, you know, and it's so humbling to be in that space and to have to use your brain to, you know, sort of analyze or kind of step back and see, but to really be present, your, your head isn't in the numbers, you know, it isn't in the textbook. So it's really beautiful. And I mean, such a blessing that you can operate that way since you've never birthed yourself. (laughs) It's a really cool thing. Thank Actually, I did that. birth myself. Yes, uh, you did. June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty five. I birthed. That's awesome. I birthed myself. <laughs> you did birth yourself, and we're four days apart, but a couple of years apart. Four days? Are you? Yeah. June twenty first. I'm June twenty eighth. We're both twenty eighth. Cancer. Cancer. Cool. Yeah. Very nice. Very cool. Wow. Well, where to go from there? Anything that comes to your mind that you want to add or? Well, I do think, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that the palliative care thing also has um, has really played a big part in, in in where I've gone in my career. And yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So right now I'm at, at UC San Diego um, in sort of one of the more famous palliative care training programs. I was born out of the San Diego hospice program, which, which, you know, it closed down, shut their doors several years ago for complicated reasons. But out of that um, fellowship training program, you know, UCSD and Scripps kind of pick up the ball from there. And um, palliative, do you know much about palliative medicine, Marin? I don't know a lot. Yeah. So palliative care is a specialty that, again, we don't really learn much about it in medical school because it's not, um, there's a lot of science backing what palliative care doctors do, but it's because it's, it's, it's actually seen as the opposite of, if you're not trying to cure it, then what are right. you trying to do? Right. And in medicine, in Western medicine, we don't accommodate disease. We try to eradicate disease. And the reality is that you know, if you have advanced cancer, let's say, which is a, a large portion of my mm. patients, at some point that cancer is going to quote win, mm. right? Which, you know, we emphasize this battle with cancer. And if you emphasize battle, that means that there's a whole bunch of losers out there. And that to me has never sounded appropriate. But, but let's say that the, once the cancer starts winning, then what can a doctor do if a doctor can't fix it? If they can't fix it, then we shrug our shoulders and we say, um, mm. I don't know. You know, and, and we start offering things that maybe not aren't useful and, and potentially even harmful, like additional chemotherapy when you've failed chemotherapy multiple times and the chemotherapy itself is making you sicker than the mm -hmm. cancer. So palliative care emerged as a means of trying to meet the needs of patients with advanced illness and who have very, very complicated symptoms. Um, and when, a, and when a medical team kind of runs out of options and starts shrugging and looking around, we're the the ones that are hopefully going to be stepping in to help to help take care of a couple of things. So what we do is we take care of, of complicated symptoms like pain, nausea, constipation, anxiety, depression, et cetera. We're, we're kind of like 80% experts on all of those things. Mm -hmm. And we also will talk to patients and their family members to sort of learn about who a person is and what their goals are and what their fears mm -hmm. are about what's happening to them. And only after you ask those questions are you able to really help coordinate their care in such a way that they're 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 receiving maximum benefit without with with maximal reduction of harm. So I you know I brought up cancer. Um, everybody that I know has been touched in some way by cancer, for better or for worse. For sure. And in most cases, it's it's you know like a family member who had it, and they had to say goodbye to their mother or father or whoever. And and I feel for for people now that I've been through this, but I also lost my own father to multiple myeloma when I was in medical school mm -hmm. and he had a palliative care team that helped him with his pain and helped him with his nausea because he wanted to get more chemo because he was a fixer and he wanted to fix this thing. Mm -hmm. And by getting palliative care involved, they were able to get his nausea controlled and his pain controlled such that he could tolerate higher doses of chemotherapy to buy him maybe some more time with us. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk about the process of labor when a person goes into labor a woman's in labor she comes into the hospital and this is a frightening thing people start throwing things at her hoping something works right we have this way we do it you come in you you're six centimeters you're admitted you maybe want an epidural we recommend the epidural because you should relax and there's all this stuff being said to you 
without anybody ever really sitting down and finding out who you are. There's no time for that sometimes, right. you know, and um, fortunately in palliative care and a lot of these disease processes, you have time, you have time to sit down and get to know a person and get to know who they are and, and where they came from and how this cancer thing has been for them. And, and you're often surprised when you start asking them those questions because most people think cancer is very scary and it is, I'm sure for, for me included, it would be, but a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, it's just the way it is. And their spiritual beliefs permit them to live a life where they're fighting the cancer, but they're also, you know, comfortable with the idea that maybe the end is coming, coming near. And um, again, you don't know those things until you talk until you ask them. So palliative care is sort of like one of those things that if it were combined with obstetrics, you would, you would, you would sort of see midwifery. Mm. And, um, and so there's, I have a natural proclivity for, for leaning in that direction um, because getting to know the person is, is not a luxury. It's a requisite. It's requisite for me to take the best, to, to provide them the best care possible. And so, you know, when you're looking at something as, as scary as death and dying, regardless of the reason that those fears around death and dying, the only other place I've ever seen those fears is in the eyes of a, of a woman who doesn't know what's happening with her pregnancy or what's happening with her labor or what's going to happen with the baby that's getting whisked away to the NICU. And so naturally palliative care lends itself to the practice of obstetrics and, 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 um, and so, yeah, so that's, so that's, that's where I'm at in my, in my, um, training and my sort of understanding of everything. And I initially was hoping to bring palliative care back into OBGYN to make OBGYN better. Mm. But instead I'm actually doing the majority of my time in my oncoming first real job in, um, uh, in palliative medicine, mm. spending most of my time there and then doing part of my time in obstetrics as like a, a real badass OB. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's so many similarities between birth and death and holding space, which is really so what any of us do, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, like you say, wanting to fix things, no matter who you are, is a natural human way of reacting, I think. But yeah. um, in birth, especially, I mean, that's where I have more experience. That's really where you learn to, um, yeah, let go, you know, whether you're the woman or, or the care provider, it's, it's more about just holding that space and, and seeing what the person wants and which way they want to go. And, you know, in the end, I guess, I, I don't believe we necessarily control any of those outcomes, you know, in the bigger picture of things. Of course, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't. We really don't. No. We're powerless. No, of course not. So it's one of those, it's, it's also interesting that in our culture, we somehow got to the point we, where we sterilized both death and birth. Right. To a point where, you know, it's, they're like the two topics that you never bring up around the dinner table mm -hmm. or with your grandparents. Like you don't really get into the details of your birth with grandma or the details of what death might look like with your grandfather. Like it just seems too, too intimate of a thing to talk about with people who have lived like for your grand, you know, my grandfather's 96 this year. Right. He's lived 96 years. You don't think he can handle a story about birth? Like this guy was through probably six wars for all I know. Right. And he's loved and had his heart broken and he's gone through all of those normal human things. And for some reason we, we feel like we can't talk about like the, the quote gross stuff in life. 
mm-hmm. um, which for us, I guess, as a culture, we see death as, as one of these, like, it's like a little taboo. Like, you just don't talk about it. And, and so we protect children from a very young age from these conversations and from the death process. And, we, you know, the, the mortician makes grandpa... to confess in the same way in, in obstetrics it wasn't until recently that like it was a common practice for fathers or other family members or little kids to be present during a birth right. i mean unless unless of course you're a midwife and you've and you you know you have an approach to childbirth that permits a woman to be on the floor or in the shower or in a tub or on a stool or in the house or whatever um so that it's a part of life. Like it's just a part of the, the household. Like I had my baby over in that corner. There's like a pretty beautiful notion, but for some reason we've, we've medicalized it in such a way where this isn't something we talk about, let alone, is it something you do in your house? Like, ugh, that's right. despicable. <laughs> and so these two topics just never come up. We never talk about them as, as a society. And, and so, um, and so birth and death, I think, I think suffer, from the same cultural stigmata um and and it just makes our lives as birth educators and and birth birth practitioners for lack of better terms it makes it makes it a lot harder for us to provide quality care to those people that need it most yeah yeah so true so true and i feel like it's getting worse in a way you know just with the younger generations are becoming um, even stranger to consider yeah. these things. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's totally up to people like us, you know, and you on both ends of the spectrum. Um, I had that thought this past year, my grandpa was a hundred and he um, died, but my relatives out in New York were, you know, looking for um, kind of how to make it okay for him in the hospital. And yeah. here I am on the other side of the country, you know, not really involved enough to say anything, but why did yeah. he have to stay in the hospital? Like bring the man right. home, you know? Right, right, um, right, but it's right. ingrained right. in us to just, you know, be in these institutions and let someone else take care of it when, totally. you know, totally. we're, we're capable of all of these things, the beginning and the end. Sure. Yeah. You know, even even the uh, even the, like the the sort of expedited like um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? As soon as a baby is born, we go into like action mode, and right. there's three or four people running around doing all this crazy shit. Can I say shit on your podcast? Yes, you totally can. <laughs> so much crazy shit in the room, and it's like, guys, a freaking baby is just came out of her vagina, and he's sitting on her chest, and he's rooting around there, and, and he's fine. And he's totally fine. He's just hanging out. Like, what are you guys running around for? Just like, let them have this moment. And they're like moving her arm around, trying to get blood pressures and like fixing the stirrups. It's like, just relax. Like, just relax. If there was a shoulder, if I needed to do a vacuum assist, if the baby, um, you know, we have, you know, has a known fetal cardiac defect or, or like there's a million reasons why you should be involved this is not one of them like right. let's just let this happen in the same way when a person dies we let's call them more call them the, the mortuary is going to come and pick them up and we're going to get there's this weird black body bag and you put grandpa in this body bag. And it's like oh my god like what is wrong with this oh. picture like it's just like we're so uncomfortable with that that space there sure. that we don't even mourn we don't even allow ourselves to grieve 
or to celebrate in the, in right. the in or the, to in feel the, it, you know, yeah. to feel any of it. And it's so rushed and the intention, you know, is lost. Although yeah. whatever intention we have, you know, isn't the most important thing in the room anyway, like where's the space for that person, you know, for right. that woman to receive her baby and that baby, like who needs that? Who needs mm-hmm. that stress? But it is just, Again, you are very odd, as you know, because I don't think that's, uh, I mean, I know that's not the training. So I'm wondering how you even work in that setting like you do uh, with people running around and, you know, having all their routines and maybe not stopping and thinking and feeling because they weren't taught to do that. And, you know, that's not the way it goes. I don't know that I'd be able to deal with that. Yeah. And, and I think, I think, to add on to your question, the answer is I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know why I'm on this end of the, the tunnel. Right. I have a, a wife who's very emotionally intelligent. And when I think about her going through one of these experiences, mm. um, like in the birth world, which she will eventually, yeah. um, I think, gosh, I don't know how I would, how I would prefer to be spoken to by the nurses and whatnot, because that would stress me out if I was the, the partner of a woman who's going through this very challenging thing and, somebody's speaking to me in that way. And, and granted, I don't have the, I'm not the perfect communicator in my own marriage, but we've known each other since high school. And it's like, gosh, we've even talked about this stuff ahead of time. And I know exactly where she is. And she's a very strong, very intelligent, educated woman who is going to still be so afraid when she's in that moment, number one, because she hasn't had any experience with other women. I mean, apart from like her friends saying, Oh yeah, the baby's out. Here's the baby. Like that was scary. You know, she's never really been a part of, uh, well, she has with her nephew and niece, but, but it's not like it's a, she has a legacy of like seeing all these births that you and I have. So she's going in with like, uh, I hope it goes well. Well, most people haven't. That's like a huge part of the problem. Women have no context for what they're about to go through. Right. There's no red tents, you know, no. we're not together and actually talking. Um, and I, you know, I, we could probably talk for another hour about that in particular, but, you know, knowing what, what I know and what she knows and, and how we have this incredible cohesive relationship going into that experience is still very scary. And I don't know, I don't know how we're going to handle it. Right. So me then on being on the other side of that, looking at my patient and her partner and this, maybe some kids in the room or whatever, and seeing how that we all interact as a big team, nurses and, and other physicians included, you know, it's like, you're constantly asking like, is this really the best we can do? Is this really what is going to work best for this scary situation? And the answer resoundingly is no. Okay. Um, apart from those occasional great births that just, they just work and, and like everybody is just vibing and it feels great. And we feel like we've done everything we can to just provide this, this patient with the ultimate, ultimate experience. And occasionally that happens. Occasionally it happens with death. Um, but it's, but it's more, unfortunately it's the exception versus the rule, at least whenever this, this, you know, the birth experience takes place in a hospital. Right. Yeah, I was going to go there next, actually. Um, My first baby was born in a hospital. So of course, you know, I've seen it with transports and experienced it and never went back, uh, as is probably obvious, um, and began midwifery training after our second baby. So I've been there and it's really hard 
to respect the physiological process. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's just more of the same. Like, I don't know how anyone does that. And even just personally, like, are you guys ever on the home birth side? Like, what is your experience with that? Have you gotten to attend any? Is that still pretty far outside of like where you would go? But just based on, you know, what you've shared, I have to ask. So there's, um, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I have, yes, I have been involved in home births. And the first time I was in LA for my training and I was probably halfway through um, my training when there was a speaker at one of our didactic sessions who was a, um, an experienced OBGYN. His name is Stu Fishbein. Yeah, he, he's been on this podcast. Oh, good. Okay. I see. I, I, I would have known that had I, um, I, I've listened to like most of his interviews, but right. uh, there's so many podcasts out there now that it's like, oh my gosh. So totally. I feel embarrassed that I didn't know he was on yours and I'll no, go no. back and listen to it. It's um, all good. So, you know, Stu, he came to, um, he came to our, one of our education sort of didactic sessions and Gave a, gave a chat just about sort of what the data shows about breach delivery. And, you know, he's, he's been on a quest to try to reteach. Yeah, I think it's actually his, his sort of tagline is reteach breach. And, um, and so he even does breach deliveries at home. And, you know, that, that's a pretty scary place for people that are fresh out of OBGYN training because mm. you don't learn how to do breach deliveries adequately. Right. right. Um, and if the baby's out and the butt's there, you, you hold the baby there. And I mean, you, you, move to the OR as quickly as possible because you don't want to get the head stuck and all this other wow. stuff that, they, that yeah. they talk about. And, you know, his big point has been, you know, the risk of something bad happening in a appropriately selected patient um, is very, very low. And, um, and so, you know, he's developed skills over years and years and years, and he, he probably does it better than the majority of people on planet earth that he could actually safely deliver a breach a breech baby. But anyways, uh, I bring him up because as soon as I heard about him, I said, and he did that he does this in the home. I said, Hey, I, I want to learn how to do this. And yeah. he invited me to ride along with him on a delivery. And we went to a home in Temecula and everything was set up. They kind of prepare the patient's home ahead of time and they have all the supplies there so that when they go into labor, they can set up a tub and they can, you know, they have their whole process. And I was, it was amazing because he had two midwives there with him. And yeah. one was a student at the time. Um, his partner bliss and then um, another midwife was there as well and and I we just kind of hung out and just let her labor and it was a lot of doing nothing which was so different from what I'm used to seeing in the hospital it's like right. and I remember Stu teaching me that night he said you have to if you if you're going to do obstetrics it's best if you learn to the art of doing nothing and I, I that has really stuck with me it's been a um it was a real, it was a real pleasure to see that in action because it really is very, mm. very little that you're doing. And, you know, if there's a little tiny laceration at the end that might, you know, be a little bit, you know, bleeding a little bit when the, you know, when a woman's up in stirrups, it still bleeds because there's no pressure on it. But as soon as her legs are back together and she's in bed breastfeeding her baby, like suddenly it all kind of just comes back together, you know? So there's, you know, there's little things like that, that you don't, you don't learn unless you see it in action. And, um, it's hard to imagine that outside of this, you know, I, I'm using air quotes here, this sort of sterile hospital mm -hmm. culture. And, um, and I remember leaving that birth, which was actually a very quick labor, um, relatively speaking. We were there all night, but it was, I think from start to finish, it was probably like 
eight hours of, 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 of action. Nice. Um, and we left probably around 8 a.m. after we made her, you know, we made her a smoothie and left her in bed with the baby and her daughter was there and the husband was there. It was just this beautiful scene at the end. And, 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 and we left. And I remember, I remember on the ride home, I, of course I was tired. We really hadn't slept, but I remember feeling just as sleep deprived as I always had been in residency training. And, and we talked sleep deprived. We're talking like six weeks straight of never seeing sunshine because you're on nights like yeah, a night and it's just ridiculous hours mm-hmm. and you're not respected. You're just pissed off at everybody. They're all pissed off at you. It's just this crappy five to six week period of time where, you know, it's not, it's, it's inhumane, but it's survivable that you're just barely hanging on and, and you know, it's just miserable. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, when you're in the hospital setting and you're doing that and you're sleep deprived, you're, st- you're constantly, you know, through this process of cognitive dissonance, you're, you're like, I guess it's okay that this thing happened. And I guess it's okay that we did that thing, but it wasn't the right thing to do. And you just have to keep telling yourself that it probably was the right thing to do because of this data over here or this study over here. But oh like, gosh. it really wasn't, it, it really wasn't the right thing to do. I'm, I feel bad. I'm going to internalize these feelings I have about not doing the right thing or saying the right thing to that, to that poor woman or that poor partner and that, mm-hmm. at that time. And, the contrast to going to the home delivery was, oh, this whole thing just happened. And we were there in case something needed to be done. Yep. I, went, I went home to my wife and I was beaming. <laughs> I was just, I was glowing with like, whoa, this is what obstetrics should be like. Why right. is this not my everyday life? And, right. and so, you know, so... Uh, yes, I have done it. I have been there for that. And the idea of something scary happening and having to transfer to the hospital rapidly mm-hmm. is something that sounds like an ultimate nightmare for me. Right. But it's also, you know, it's also an ultimate nightmare when that happens in the hospital. Sure. Um, it's it's just, you know, when you're when you are practicing and you're faced with four years of hard labor in a hospital environment, the idea of like you finally, after four years, you have it all figured out, a system there where you have medications you can call for and an operating room and you can do all these great things with your hands and all these fancy instruments. Mm. Um, when you get comfortable with that, it's very, very hard to break out of that mold. I'm starting in the home. So, so it's a, it's, yeah, it's, it's not that I think OBGYNs are not open to it. It's that most OBGYNs can't per- conceive of it. Right. Right. Because they haven't sought out somebody like Stu Fishbein who, was happy to take you along and show you what, you know, a, a well-trained, experienced, confident OB can do. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm so glad that you know each other and you had that opportunity. I mean, of all the people to tag along with, that's a pretty awesome one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, like obstetricians attending home births are also like unicorns. I can only mm-hmm. think of a handful and um, the ones I can think of, you know, probably well recently aren't even doing it anymore. So that's sad. Uh, One of the only ones left. So yeah, that's really cool. Well, good. I thought I'd ask and it's really (laughs) nice to hear you've had that experience. It also makes you very odd, but in a good way. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about your podcast, even though. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. No, no, no. One last, one last thing. Yeah. the the uh, the birth ex- the home birth experience I think is I think it's um, even more so than the fact that things from for a lot of patients would happen completely naturally in home 
yeah. even more so than learning that when you see it in action. I think that what we can really learn, what we can really teach as a first step for OBGYNs through the home birth experience or the birth center experience or whatever, just the involvement of midwives mm-hmm. in general in whatever setting is that even if, even if you wanted to argue that every birth should be in the hospital, which ACOG is pretty firm about, Right. There's so many things we could do in the hospital to make things better. The problem is not home versus hospital. The problem is that the hospital environment is completely, um, it's, it's, it's detrimental to the labor process because of all of those anti-physiological things that we do to people without even realizing it. And so, you know, that's probably a whole separate conversation, but it's, it's, you know, it's the fact that the whole thing is built around the comfort of a system that is built, you know, has sort of found, found da- as a foundation that is not patient centered. And so, and so, you know, the fact that I walk into a labor and delivery room and I keep the bed, you know, don't put through the stirrups, just keep the bed as it is. I put in some gloves. I don't put on the whole Darth Vader outfit, you know, <laughs> I probably will put goggles on because I don't want to be sprayed in the eyes with anything. But, you know, my mouth is closed. I've got intact skin and I've got goggles on and a pair of sterile gloves. Like I can deliver a baby like that without putting anybody else through any sort of like distress because, because, you know, like Darth Vader's looming over them trying to pull a baby out of them. Like it's like I'm there to assist. I'm not there to do anything apart from be there in case you need me. And if you, if, if, if every OBGYN did that, and, and advocated for labor and delivery units to be a little bit more patient centered, we would have a very different looking obstetric practice in the United States um, that, that wouldn't necessi- necessitate a, a conversation that was so diametrically opposed between home birth and hospital birth. You know right. what I mean? So, and, and that's not me saying home birth is not safe. That's me saying that even I, that's me saying that we're asking the wrong question, you know, right. like hospital births are so medicalized and, and that experience is so medicalized and so just dumb in so many ways that like we can just do so much better without even talking about, without even taking that, that, that control piece away from people sure. who say that this has to happen in the hospital. Otherwise you're, you're doing, you're endangering yourself and your baby. Like, fine, keep that. You can keep that. It has to be in the hospital. But if it's going to be in the hospital, let's just do this so much differently. And that's where, that's where I really feel like, I feel like I'm most useful because I do appreciate the hospital environment. I, we have great nurses that do an amazing job. And we have great physicians that do an amazing job. But not every unit is like that. Right. And so so right. I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're right. We could talk for hours. And I always say, you know, it's not even personal. It's not even like home versus hospital. It's not doctors versus midwives. It's simply women, honestly, I think, you know, and that's a lot of the work we do is just education about undisturbed birth so that women can have that information. Families can have it. They can see if that resonates with them. And then they go from there, you know, and they don't wind up in a place they shouldn't be in. and if they have certain beliefs about birth and even in, if they're in the hospital, then they might find a physician like you to support them. So um, it's just about transparency, I think, and full disclosure and having people uh, reconnect with what's inside of them. And then they make their choices, right? Like there's no judgment on that. I don't think 
Yeah. Um, you know, we have to leave, leave it open for people to choose what's best for them. But the majority of people just don't even know their right. options or, or how birth works or the right. fact that, you know, a doctor isn't in control of their experience or no <laughs> one is. No one is. Yeah, we wish it's, we were and we, we don't have any control. Um, no, yeah, likewise. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I will I'll also finish this, this part of the conversation by saying that if my wife was adamant about having a home birth, I would support her. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That and, and I don't mean adamant like she fought me on it. I mean, I mean, if she said, <laughs> Hey honey, can we talk about a home birth? I would be 100% on board, it, yeah. you know, and, and we would, we would be doing a lot of planning and everything, but you know, as long as she didn't have any major medical issues or if I was concerned for some reason that maybe we, we, we would have something just based on my clinical gestalt. Sure. Then I don't see why not. You know, and I'm also, I mean, I'm on, I'm an obstetrician, so maybe it's not fair that, you know, that I'm probably a little bit biased, but, um, but anyways, yeah, I, I am in support of that for a lot of people, especially whenever they've been educated and they've seen so many things, you know, as many of your patients probably have, or they've had bad experiences before. It's like, you know, right. Why not? Right. Yeah, for sure. Obviously. And you know, that, that takes a lot of work too. So Sure. Um, it's not for everyone. And I think it's, yeah, quite the journey for the woman herself and, and her partner and, and, right. you know, takes a lot of like, self reflection and, and talking about all of these things we've talked about, actually, you know, like, talking about death is a huge uh, part of birth, and we don't have to go down oh that road God. again. Yeah, but, um, yeah, just saying that, yeah, often when people are in more medicalized birth situations, it's just, you know, these kind of things aren't talked about because they assume this or that. So it's just yeah. different. There are different conversations and different care and all of that. So cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, can we talk about your podcast for a few minutes? That way people know how I found you and where to find you if they want to hear you talk more. Uh, yeah, why don't you just tell us about it and how you came up with it and, and what you do over there on that podcast. Yeah, well, uh, so the podcast is called Obigino Wino. And <laughs> the, so the, the reason, I mean, this is like legitimately when I have to sit down and read the, some of these practice guideline documents, they're like, up to 12, 15 pages long, some of them. They're very long, very dense. And I'm sure you've seen them. They're just packed full of info. There's no fluff. There is like, it's mm. just, there's a hundred citations. Here's what we need to know in order to, to um, stay up to date, right, on a specific topic. So um, do you remember which episode you, you found whenever you, you listened? Or w- um. what, what you were listening to when you found me? Yeah, I listened to, I think it was ectopic pregnancy. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and I mean, right, they're all super helpful because I don't think any midwife is opposed to technology. You know, we have harder access, of course, to that kind of thing, and maybe women that aren't as quick to utilize it, but I found it really helpful and, you know, topics that I'll go back to. And like we were talking about things for our students to have access to as they're learning, um, just because the way you kind of uh, make it pretty concise is helpful. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. So, you know, so that the, there's about a hundred of these guideline documents, I'd say, give or take, um, you know, that are published through the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And the 
you know, the green journalists are, are sort of like governing journal and every month they, they produce, they, they either reaffirm or they will replace one of these documents with updated guidelines. And, mm. and so the practice bulletins and committee opinions between them, like I said, there's a hundred or so. And um, every time that that's a new issue of the green journal comes out, I'll take those topics and I'll digest them into I I try to do it, you know, within 30 minutes, but sometimes they're so dense that it's really hard. I have to even break them into two parts, but, 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 you know, as, as busy professionals, well, you know, reading and, and reviewing those documents every month or so, it's really time consuming. And I'm just not smart enough to read 15 pages and remember everything. It's just doesn't work for my brain. So, Um, so for me, listening to podcasts, I find that I'm, I miraculously remember almost everything I hear, but I don't, I don't remember if I read it. So yeah. uh, if I'm not doing or, or, or hearing, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people are like that. And uh, so I prepare it, I prepare some notes from the document and I record it as a podcast. And um, it's a tool for me to help keep myself updated and for anybody in the birthing or the gynecology world that wants to get, you know, the updated guidelines, that's what it's there for. And um, even if I have, you know, 10 listeners, I'm still getting the review that I need. It's just a resource that's out there in case, in case people want to uh, indulge. Oh, and I pair it with wine. That's why the name is Obigino Wino. <laughs> what better way to review and pop open some Merlot, you know? <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I have to say, I definitely laughed the first time I listened. I was like, what is this guy going to do? What is, <laughs> what is this? Is he going to talk about wine or no? But yeah it's very very crafty of you to combine those things oh it's it's been fun i have some like microphones and all this cool podcasting gear now but it's i'm just sitting on my at my table in my house and i'm reading my notes and and you know cracking jokes about my dog that's running around it's it's been a lot of fun (laughs) yeah it is fun and yeah it'll be fun to see where that goes for you or not I guess depending on life circumstance and time um, getting to hear you talk about other things like today would be really fun too just saying if you branch outside of the practice guidelines but I guess you'll see how it goes yeah 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 absolutely absolutely yeah and 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 uh, you know it's important to mention that there are guidelines and for anybody out there who's, who's going to base their entire practice on specifically what is recommended in guidelines. That's a safe way to practice, but it's not always the best way to practice because, you know, like you said, every patient's individual, every situation is needs to be individualized and you have to customize um, your approach using any of the various tools that you've picked up in your, in your years of practice. And that goes for physicians, midwives, dentists, lawyers, whatever. Um, there's not a prescribed way to do things. So knowing the guidelines is helpful to keep you within safe parameters, but sometimes you end up outside of those guidelines and, um, and, uh, and yeah, so you have to know the guidelines, I guess, to know where the safety, the parameters are. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's definitely true. Cause you don't know what you don't know. So you got to start right. with something. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, anything else you want to add or. Um, no, I'm looking, I'm, I'm glad you reached out. I'm glad we got to know each other because uh, I love, I love getting to know people in the birth world. I think we live in a special sacred place and, and, um, I'm looking forward to, to more conversations with you and to, into more years of 
fun within this community myself. Yeah, awesome. Me too. And uh, I'll add for any of our students listening or potential students of our Indie Birth Midwifery School that I would love to get um, Dr. Nathan here to teach for us a little bit. So we're working on that and hopefully uh, we'll utilize some of your wisdom as much as you have time to share with us. But just really grateful to have you here. Grateful that you are such a cool down to earth guy. And likewise, looking forward to connecting more. Um, so people can find you. You mentioned your podcast that's on iTunes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, if you search, I'm going to, I want to make sure that I actually have it listed here correctly. So OBGYNO, so O-B-G-Y-N-O space W-I-N-O space podcasts. And um, you'll see, you'll, you'll, you'll find it right away. It comes up right away. If, any, if anybody out there likes it and would leave a review, I think that it, it helps. I think it helps it come up more quickly on the search engine, but it's a pretty unique name. I don't think that anybody's had any issues with finding it. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm beyond the MD, as in stuff outside of medical doctor, beyond the MD right. on Twitter and Instagram. But I, you know, I'm not, I'm not super into social media. You can find me anywhere though. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, it's pretty easy. I found you quite easily. So uh, give the podcast a listen. Highly recommended, of course. And Indie Birth Wives, check out the site for latest information. We are enrolling for Indie Birth Midwifery School July 2019. So check out IndieBirthMidwiferySchool.org and have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.